Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that it is God who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers in his sight? Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, that my way is hidden from Yahweh and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint. Holy Father, we thank you that you are a great God, that you are sovereign, that you are ruling the nations of this world. Thank you that while it appears at times this world is in a tailspin and out of control, you are in absolute control and that your providence extends even to the smallest details of life. You said the hairs on our head and even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from your notice. We thank you that you've given us not only the beginning plan, but the end game plan of how you will culminate history, that your book, the Holy Bible, tells us both sides. And so we come humbly today to give you the praise and adoration that is due you. We open ourselves up before you and thank you, Spirit of God, for giving us this word that you inspired every letter. You said the smallest jot and tittle written by your inspiration, and we ask that as we read it today, we would read with open minds and hearts, that we would hear from heaven, that we would be more than those who just gather information, but a people who are willing to learn that we might apply and be changed and conform to the image of Christ. We pray for our Graniteville and our Bluffton campus, that you would continue to grow those two locales each Lord's Day. Now, Father, I need your help. Thank you that as we wait upon you, we renew our strength. Thank you for your spirit. And I ask that he would come and fill me and anoint me and minister through me and to me. I ask it in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you take God's holy inspired word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 13. If you're here for the first time, we're working our way verse by verse through this great revelation. And as you can see there, the title of this morning's sermon is The Coming Evil Superman. And I'm referring here, of course, to Satan Superman because of his intellectual genius and the supernatural authority that he will have. Men will be willing to die for him. Women will swoon at his feet. And children will speak of him with great respect and reverence. In fact, this man, Satan's Messiah... He will have as his biggest plank as he walks onto the world stage a idea for world peace that most people will embrace. He's called by many, many names in the Bible. Over 30 different titles are given to him, but he's probably best known for the title called Antichrist in that he comes both in the place of Christ and he comes against Christ. So we're going to study him from this 13th chapter over the next several weeks. Today, we're going to look at just two verses. They're foundational. I suppose I could just fly through the whole chapter in one message and 
maybe stir your thoughts a little bit, but if you really want to get this 13th chapter, which is foundational to the chapters that follow, we need to go through it slowly. So today we're going to look at just verses 1 and 2, but to give you a flavor of where we're going, we're going to read the first nine verses. It sounds like you have it. Follow along. Revelation 13, beginning now in verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea and having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne in great authority. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slain, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Years ago, I read of a man who wanted to buy a nice barometer for his home, And so he bought a very expensive model from Abercrombie and Fitch, which back then was a sporting and excursion goods store. It was minutely calibrated, designed to measure, of course, atmospheric pressure to forecast coming changes in the weather. And he carefully and proudly put it there on his mantle, and as he looked at the needle as he took it out of the box that day, it was stuck on the word hurricane. So he shook it a little bit, but it didn't seem to adjust. He shook it again, but the needle stayed right there. And he said, well, now I've paid for this expensive barometer and it's defective. He lived on Long Island and as he got on the train and rode into the city, he wrote a scathing letter to Abercrombie and Fitch telling them how displeased he was that they would send him a defective barometer. But his trip home was delayed that day because unbeknown to virtually everyone, the great hurricane of 1938 hit. It was one of the worst weather disasters Long Island has ever seen, and his home was literally washed out to the sea that day. Now, there was nothing wrong with the barometer. He just refused to believe that a hurricane was coming. And I'll tell you, dear friend, there's nothing wrong with the Word of God and what we're going to study today. The Word of God needs no adjusting. It only needs believing. Now, I want you to listen today to God's barometer as he describes this coming world leader that I'm calling Satan's Superman, Satan's Messiah. There's coming a man, he's probably already standing in the wings, who is empowered by evil like no one has ever been empowered. Daniel, the prophet, in the second half of the 11th chapter, where you have one of the most detailed exposés in all of the Bible of this man, he tells us that this king will do as he pleases, 
and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Why? Because he comes from the same source that Satan expresses. Satan, who wanted to be like God, who wanted to magnify himself above the angels of God, will be the one who's empowering this man. Now, here's a slide to remind you of a few of the titles that are used to describe this man. Again, there's some 30. He's called the Little Horn, the Prince who is to come, uh, the King who does as he pleases. He's called a King of Fierce Countenance, the Son of Perdition, the Man of Lawlessness. He's called a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd, the willful king, a despicable person. Um, But this man, whose name in Greek adds up to 666, comes like an angel of light, and yet he is so wicked, so loathsome, that God describes him with the title beast. Now, of course, in the history of the world, there have been many men who have sought to put the nations of this world at their feet. 1,500 years ago, or 1,500 years before Christ, the great pharaohs wanted to rule the world, especially the Middle East. 600 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar, whom we studied in the prophet Daniel, he crafted out an empire that included most of Western Asia. 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great swept his armies as far as East India, and at least for a brief time, he controlled Western Asia, North Africa, and Southeast Europe. Of course, during the time of Christ, the Roman Caesars had the largest land masses ever accumulated and ruled by a people there in the Roman Empire, and of course, in modern times. Napoleon tried to uh, achieve world conquest until he was defeated there at Waterloo. And even in the last century, men like Stalin and Lenin and Hitler all wanted the world at their feet. Yet none of these leaders ever have dominated the entire world. But the Bible teaches that there is a man who is coming initially as a quote-unquote peacemaker who for at least a short time will literally rule the whole world. Now, God authoritatively writes in his book not only how the world began, but how the world ends. I was studying Zechariah the prophet this week in my quiet time, and he gives us a basis on the ninth chapter for the prophecy that he is going to write that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And really, that's why Satan attacks that basic truth. If you can't believe how God brought the world into being to begin with, then why should you believe anything else? And so these foolish Christians who write even books on apologetics who say that theistic evolution is a viable option for us have not read their Bible very carefully. So there's coming this world leader who under God's sovereignty... Because remember, the devil is God's devil, as Luther used to say. The devil can only do what God allows him to do, and the devil is going to have his man. And this is really one of the great prophetic chapters in the Revelation that describe his ministry. And unfortunately, we have all these self-proclaimed prophets today who make all kinds of assertions in different religions of the world, and their prophecies are so vague and uh, so wide in their scope that they could apply to scores of things. I hope you know that there are not any prophecies in the Quran or in the Hindu Vedas 
or in the Book of Mormon, the only book ever written that demonstrates within itself that it is the Word of God that has fulfilled specific prophecy is the Holy Bible. And yet we live in a day when many Christians, unfortunately, while they believe literally the prophecies as they relate to the first coming, somehow want to spiritualize the prophecies when they come to the second coming. And we'll see why that's a dangerous thing to do as we work through the revelation. Now, it's been a while since I've set the whole broad context, and my desire for you as your pastor is that when we're done with the book of Revelation, you can think your way through it. That's my desire when I preach any book of the Bible, that you know what that book is about and you have at least a solid outline and how it unfolds. Now, if you remember from Revelation 1-7, the theme of the book is given, that he is coming in the clouds. It's all about the return of Messiah from heaven. The outline for the book is given in Revelation 119. There's a few books in the Bible where we are given a divine outline. Revelation 119 says, therefore, Jesus is speaking to John the apostle, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, and the things that are, that's the present, and the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. And by the time, of course, you get to this verse in the opening chapter, John has already given a description of the past of the exalted, glorified Christ. Then, as this next slide shows, um, beyond the vision of Christ in chapter 1, which is the past, right, the things that you have seen, then he writes about the things that are the present. And so in chapters 2 and 3, he writes of seven churches that are actually functioning in his day. The letter is written to seven churches, and of course, by extension and application, like all the New Testament letters, they're written to this church as well. Then beginning in chapter 4, all the way through the end of the book, you have the things which will take place after these things. In fact, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 1, just so you can't miss it, just so you know that you're coming to the futuristic section of the book, that verse says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here. Now we'll show you what must take place after these things. And if you remember from earlier sermons, this is a description of the rapture. And we compared Scripture with Scripture. There's a door that's open in heaven. And unlike the vision of the throne room of God in the fourth chapter, unlike the vision that you have of Daniel's picture of the throne room and Isaiah's picture of the throne room, what makes this throne room picture unique, while there are many parallels is that only here in Revelation 4 do you see the 24 elders. Elders represent, of course, the church. The church has been caught up into heaven. So when you come to this fourth chapter, you're in the after these things section of the book. In chapter 4, we see the throne of God the Father and those saints in heaven, church saints who are worshiping the living God, then in chapter 5, we see God the Father hand the seven-sealed scroll to God the Son. And of course, that scroll, as it's opened, begins the Great Tribulation, a period that is unprecedented in human history. Someone asked me, um, they said their, their friend said that we're in the Tribulation period now, and God had showed her that. No, we're not. We're not in the Tribulation. 
were not there at all. Believe me, <laughs> as Trump would say, believe me, right? No, we're not in the Great Tribulation period. Uh, there are Christians who have thought that in the past. Paul writes his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, who thought that somehow they had misunderstood Paul, that that they had missed the rapture, thinking maybe there is no rapture, and they were in the day of the Lord, that awful time that begins with the tribulation. And Paul says, impossible, and he reminds them as well. Now, this is a terrible time in human history, and in describing it, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, believers, those days will be cut short. Now, while it is possible to miss the rapture of the church because you're not a born-again Christian, it is absolutely impossible to miss the second coming. And those two events are distinct in the Word of God. First comes the rapture, then comes the second coming. As this next slide reminds us, at the rapture, Jesus comes for His saints. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. We're going, when the rapture happens, to where the Lord Jesus is. He's coming for His saints. The Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll meet the Lord in the air, and He'll take us to heaven. This is called the day of Christ in the New Testament. Whereas the second coming called the day of the Lord, He comes back with His saints from heaven he brings us to the earth. His feet literally land on the Mount of Olives that He splits in two, and He will rule and reign upon the earth for 1,000 years. And so while you could miss the rapture, you cannot miss the second coming because every eye will see Him. All of the world will give an account to Jesus when He comes back. Now, for the rapture, there has never been a single prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled since the church began on the day of Pentecost. By contrast, the second coming is part of a predicted program of events that have to happen before it can come. Now, what's amazing is that we are a part of a generation where prophecies that were written several thousand years ago are literally being fulfilled in our day. Jesus gave a short-term prophecy, and He predicted the total destruction of Israel and the scattering of the Jewish people, which was literally fulfilled, just as He said. But He also spoke of a time at the end of time before His second coming, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like Daniel, like Zechariah, when God would gather the Jewish people back into the land. Now, they had not been a nation since 70 A.D., and we are witnessing the Jewish people continually and habitually being brought back into the land. They sat on a piece of property not much bigger than Delaware, and yet a day cannot go by where they are not front and center virtually in the news. And so God is doing what He predicted. All of it is literally actually being fulfilled. And so we're seeing signs for the second coming. And there's a lot that have to happen. Uh, there has to be a world ruler who will come on the stage. There needs to be this one world government, a one world economy where you cannot buy or sell anything unless you take the number of the beast's name 666. But again, the rapture is imminent. It could happen today. It could have happened a thousand years ago. And then the remaining prophecy that would lead up to the second coming would be fulfilled. 
So we're in the futuristic section of the book. After these things, he says it twice in that verse, so you can't miss it. He's reminding us what Jesus told John to write of the things that are, the things that uh, were, the things that are, and the things that will happen after these things. Twice over in 4.1, he signals us, he rings our bell, don't mistake it, you're now in the futuristic section. Now, when you come to chapter 6, the Lord Jesus begins to open up the seven-sealed scroll. We saw it's a scroll with seven seals on it, and not all seven are on the outside. They're in the scroll throughout it. So you break the first seal, and you unroll it, and you see what God says is going to happen. And then you break a second seal, and you unroll it a little bit further, and so on. Um, and so, let me just remind you an overview of these 27 judgments, or 21 judgments that are coming. This next slide reminds us that first will come the seven seal judgments. The Bible reveals that in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, and then these seven trumpets will unfold, and then in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. And, of course, when the final bowl is let go, then Jesus comes back to the earth. Let me zoom in on those a little bit. Here's a, a picture of the seven-sealed scroll. If you remember, the first four seals represent the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal represents a huge number of deaths of people who are coming to believe in Jesus during this final seven-year period of human history. Now, if you're here today and you're in a Bible-believing church, and if somehow you were to miss the rapture, I will prove to you from the Word of God, not my opinion, that you will not be able to receive Jesus once the rapture has taken place. The only people that we're going to learn that will become Christians during this time are folks who have never heard the gospel before in power and in clarity. And so there's these four horsemen, there's these martyrs who refuse to follow the Antichrist, there's some cosmic changes that happen in the sixth seal, and then the seventh trumpet comes. But between the sixth and seventh trumpet, we have Revelation chapter 7. It's not a pause in the action. It's a pause in the writing, a parenthesis of sorts, for God to help us to understand what was going on during the time of these six seals. And God raises up 144,000 Jewish people who preach the gospel across the world. And there's a number from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are saved and believe that Jesus is Lord. Then he brings us to the seventh trumpet. And unlike the seals that you can see just one at a time here on this next chart, you are able, though the chart obviously doesn't show it, but the Bible reveals that all seven trumpets are able to be seen. The seals you can see one at a time. When the seventh seal is open, you see all seven trumpets. And of course, in the seventh trumpet are contained the seven bowls. Now, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, again, there's a pause in the action in terms of the writing, not in what is actually unfolding. There's no break in time, but there's a break in 
terms of the reader finding out what God is doing, again, during the time of the trumpets. The trumpets, we've already noted, start right in the middle of the tribulation. It's seven years divided into two, and in the middle of the tribulation, the trumpets begin to unfold. And of course, when the trumpets, when the seventh seal is open and you see the trumpets and in turn, therefore, see the bowls, there's 30 minutes of dead silence in heaven. It's just like everyone's breath is taken away because they realize that the tribulation period is going to turn into great tribulation. Things are going to get worse. It's like a rheostat being turned up. Now, we've studied the trumpets already, but we haven't seen anything yet. When we come to the bowl judgments, that's the most intense expression of God's wrath before it turns into eternal wrath. So we're in that pause, so to speak, in these chapters where God, we saw in the 10th chapter of this little book, and we saw the two witnesses in the 11th chapter, two uh, saints that God is going to use uh, through great powers and signs and wonders to preach the gospel. I suggested to you that they were Moses and Elijah. Who they are doesn't matter, but they're going to come. The world's going to hate them. They're going to kill them. And then God is going to raise them up and take them back to heaven. And then, of course, uh, in the 12th chapter, we come to uh, these different persons. Now, here in these bold judgments, again, same, same structure. And this is important because if you don't see the heptatic structure of the book of Revelation, heptatic is just a 50-cent word for sevenfold structure. If you don't understand the sevenfold structure, Revelation becomes very confusing. These things don't happen all at once. They happen sequentially. So you have seven seals. Seven seal opens the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens the seven bowls. And again, same structure here between the sixth and seventh bowl. There's an ever so brief pause in the action to tell us again what God is preparing to do. And so sometimes he gives us a a review. Sometimes he gives us a preview. We have seen both. Now, here's the big chart giving you the overall order of events. The next event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. People say, well, the rapture is not found in the Bible. The word rapture is not. Well, it's not found in the English Bible. It's found in the Latin Bible. There's a lot of theological terms that we use that aren't found in any Bible. The word Trinity appears nowhere in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity is an orthodox truth that's revealed in Scripture. One God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. But the word rapto translates the Greek harpazo, caught up. We shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so from the Latin, we get the term rapture. When the church is raptured and we're in heaven, there's two things that are going to happen. The Bema seat, that's the evaluation seat of Christians. Look, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And if you're trying to get into heaven today by human effort and you die thinking that's the way, you'll die, the Bible teaches, and you'll go straight to hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. He wishes for none to perish, but he's only going to save you by his grace. And you must come through the cross, through the blood of the cross, or there's no salvation for you. But while every Christian is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not every Christian, once they are saved, avail themselves to that grace to serve the Lord. It's not like God saves you on the basis of grace, and now he asks you to act on the basis of performance. 
No, not at all. You're saved by grace. You live by grace. And if you are available to God and available to His Spirit to work and minister through you, He'll reward you for that in heaven. But as Paul reveals in his epistles, this judgment seat will be a sad day for a lot of believers because they're slackers, they're lazy. They come to sit, soak, and sour. Feed me, pastor, but certainly don't ask me to serve anywhere. Will it make a difference in eternity? You better believe it. And we'll look at some of those significant differences as we work through the revelation. So there's this evaluation seat called the Bema seat, the reward seat of Christ. It's not a seat of punishment. It's a seat of rewards, and there'll be differing degrees of rewards. And then we will celebrate at the marriage supper of the Lamb. While that's happening in heaven, the tribulation, which technically the first half in one place is called great tribulation, but the second half is greater, greater tribulation. So some people just call it tribulation and great tribulation. It doesn't matter, but it's seven years. How do we know that? Because Daniel tells us, Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, John tells us. And they divide it into two halves of three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a times. Right in the middle of this 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, and by the way, if you weren't here for the preaching of the book of Daniel, you might want to at least go back, get the searchthescriptures.org phone app. Some brother told me this week, he said, I love it. He said, I can, I'm at work and I can listen to sermons and I'm learning so much. And I said, that's wonderful. That, that, that's, why we, that's why we have it. And, but if you weren't here for Daniel, go back and at least listen to the four messages on Daniel 9. Because there's a 70-week prophecy that outlines the history of Israel. And he deals with the first 69 weeks that brings us to the first coming of Jesus. And then this space of time, and then the 70th week is this last seven years. Week being not a seven-day week, but a seven-year week. Because we saw that the Jews have both a week of days and a week of years. And right in the middle of that seven-year period is the AOD here on your slide. The abomination of desolation. And that's the trigger event. And when that trigger happens, look out. The world is going to see an expression of difficulty like no one could ever even conceive. So that's kind of where we're at. Now we're in this parenthetical section between the sixth and seventh trumpet that's going to open up the seven bowls. And we, if you were with us in chapter 12, we began to be introduced to seven personages. So some of these parenthetical sections look back, but they also preview for us. And so we're given uh, a picture of what is happening in some critical personalities that if you don't understand them, you won't, you'll say, well, what's going on here in the rest of the book? That's why I said chapters 12 and 13 are so important to understanding the rest of the Revelation. If John didn't give us these two chapters, we'd be scratching our heads and say, who are these people? First, he identifies the woman, which we saw is the nation of Israel, the dragon, who we saw is identified for us as the devil, the male child who can refer to none other than the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and then Michael, who in the Scripture, of course, is called the archangel. On twelve, chapter 12, verse 1, 
turn back a page in your Bible, it says, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. We saw the woman could not be Mary Baker Eddy as she thought. It's certainly not the Virgin Mary as Catholics think. And it's certainly not the church, the body of Christ, as replacement theologians teach. You see, the woman gives birth to the male child. And the male child can be identified as no one else but the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Revelation 12, look down at verse 5. And she, referring to the woman, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. What is that referencing? Psalm 2, verse 9. A picture of the Messiah when he comes and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, a child will be born unto us, a son would be given to us, and the Scriptures predicted the governments of this world will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet. A child was given to us, God became a man, we celebrated the Christmas, but at the second coming, the governments of this world will rest on the Messiah's shoulders, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It can be no none other, this woman, who gave us the Messiah. The woman is Israel. Jesus is a Jew. He came from the lineage of Israel. It can refer to none other, and that's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 9. And by further comparing the description of Revelation 12, 1, as we did with Genesis 37 and the vision Joseph has, the identical vision vision, it was a picture of the nation Israel. Seventy-five times in the New Testament, the name Israel appears. And by the way, in every single instance, it refers literally to Israel. And this is why it is amazing that we are alive to see God reestablishing the people of Israel. And He continues to bring them, even through the evil of men, whether it was Hitler, where boatload after boatload of Jews sought to escape Europe. They came even to our own shores here in America. And our government said, you're not welcomed. And they went back, and most of them were annihilated. You see those letters. It's so sad when you go into the Holocaust Museum in D.C. or Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. And the actual handwriting in the, the, the typed letters by the president's in the leaders of our nation and how they turned away the Jewish people. But God used that. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And so many fled to Israel. They began to form there and grow. And, and with a hundred million Arabs around them at a, at a time, they were supernaturally able to defeat and recapture the land that God had promised and given to them. And so God predicted this would happen even at the birth of the Messiah. The angel Gabriel came to Mary. We don't read this enough with the Christmas story, but it says he, referring to Mary's son, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That is yet to happen. But I tell you it will happen because God says it is going to happen. And so what is so sad, though, is that many Christians...
are now buying into what we call replacement theology, that God is done with Israel. The church has usurped Israel's role, but we saw that God made an unconditional covenant with Israel there in Genesis 15, that it had nothing to do with the faithfulness of Israel. It had everything to do with the integrity and the faithfulness and the promise that God made to them, that he said, as long as the sun is in the sky and the stars and the moon are out, that's how long Israel will be my nation. So here again in this next chart, we see these key personalities, the woman that refers to Israel, the dragon, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. It's no mystery in verse 9. He's identified as Satan, the serpent of old. The male child is the one who rules with a rod of iron the nations of the world, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, Michael, the archangel. And then in the next slide, if you will bring it up, there's the rest of her children that we studied last time, that saved Jewish remnant who uh, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And of course, Satan absolutely hates that. All these Jewish people are getting saved. All these Jewish people are going to realize that the one that they rejected was the Savior of the world. And there's going to be an event that we're going to study in this chapter that is going to open their eyes up, and they are going to realize that they were wrong, that Jesus is Lord. And Satan is going to detest this. He's going to hate this. We saw last time some are going to flee, and they're going to be protected by God, but then the rest who don't flee are going to be persecuted and experience great difficulty and heartache. And then we come to the last two beasts. Remember, the Antichrist, some 30 titles in the Bible. He's often called the beast that describes his vicious character. But don't just confuse him with the second beast. There are two beasts that we'll study in the 18 verses found in this chapter. There's the beast out of the sea, that's the Antichrist. And then there's the second beast, the beast out of the earth. That's his false prophet. Remember, there's this unholy trinity where Satan takes the place of God the Father, the Antichrist takes the place of God the Son, and indeed the false prophet takes the place of God the Spirit where he points men to believe in the Antichrist. Now look again here at verse 1. And the dragon who we saw was Satan... From verse 9 of chapter 12, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. So here is Satan called the dragon standing on the sand of the seashore, this one who is the beast out of the sea. Now, if you're using the New American Standard Bible this morning, you're going to see, if you have the older edition, that it reads a little bit different from the newer edition. In fact, in our English Bibles, chapter 12 and verse 1 reads in three different ways. Let me explain. Now, don't forget that the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. So just keep that in mind for a moment. But if you're using the older edition of the New American Standard, uh, this chapter opens, and he stood on the sand of the seashore. Who's the he? Well, you wouldn't know unless you went back to the nearest antecedent, which is the last verse of chapter 12. And the he, of course, is the dragon, Satan. If you have the new New American Standard, the Greek, by the way, says he. It's a pronoun. But because of the confusion 
uh, that is in some people's minds, and because sometimes we don't pay close attention to the fact that the chapter divisions are artificial, the new New American Standard interprets the pronoun, and they're correct in interpreting it, and it says there, in the dragon stood. Now, if you're using the English Standard Version, which is now a very popular version in the United States, or the Southern Baptists have their own translation called the HCSB, they break it entirely different. What they do is they make the end of verse 17 of chapter 12 longer. And so chapter 12 and verse 17, they end with the first phrase in the New American Standard, and he stood or the dragon stood, because then you, you, there's no ambiguity. Now, what makes it even more confusing is that King James reads, I stood upon the sand of the sea. Now, they're just wrong. I don't know how to say it without being mean. They're just, they're, they're just wrong. Because clearly, the one standing is not John, but the dragon, as verse 17 in the prior chapter indicates. But let me just say, in defense of these godly men who gave us the King James translation, in the first preface of the King James, written in 1611, they indicated in the front of it that they were still learning Greek, they were still learning Hebrew, there was a lot of challenges in their mind as to how to interpret certain verses, such that when the first edition of the 1611, we call it the 1611A that was released, they got some more Greek scholars. Remember, for, for nearly a thousand years, the only translation of the Bible was the Latin translation. We stood in Jerome's cave a few weeks ago where he spent 35 years in the city of Bethlehem, meeting Jewish rabbis, learning Hebrew, and translating the original scriptures into Latin. And that became the standard translation for a thousand years. So all of these insignias up here in the windows, sola gratia, sola Christos, sola Deo gloria, sola scripta or sola fide, they're all right. Latin expressions, and we have all these Latin expressions because that's the only translation the church had. The problem is Latin became a dead language, and only the scholar could read it. And of course, a lot of the religious hoi polloi love that because that put them in advantage, and it put the rest of the people in ignorance, and now you are dependent on them. And so Roman Catholicism took a prominent role, and then people realized, man, a lot of these folks are teaching error. And so came the Protestant Reformation. And one of the goals of the Reformation was to put the Bible in the language of the people. So a few months after the 1611A was released, the 1611B was released with hundreds of changes. And again, they noted in the second preface of the 1611b that they had consulted more scholars in Hebrew and Greek, and they were learning more and refining their translation. You're not reading the 1611 if you have a King James. You're reading the 1738 rendition. That has 100,000 changes between the 1611. Why? Because our English language was changing so fast. And the goal of a translator is to ask what word today best represents that Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic word. So I say that to say that the beast here is, I mean, the dragon here, of course, is Satan. Now, he's called a beast. Again, there's some confusion as to this beast 
Because if you're using the old King James, if you remember in chapter 4, we saw these uh, four beasts, as the King James says. But the new King James rightly renders it the four living creatures. Because the word that they render beasts is zoe. We get our word zoology. It speaks of something that's alive. And the word that is used for beast here in the 13th chapter is an entirely different Greek word. And it's describing the ferocious nature of this man who is going to come up out of the sea. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, this is symbolic language. Does that surprise us? No, because in the opening verse of Revelation 1.1, John tells us that this revelation is going to be communicated. And if you have the New American Standard, it footnotes a more literal rendering. It says it's going to be signified. And that's the way the King James renders it. And there, I think the King James is much better than the NASB. The first four letters of signified is S-I-G-N. It is signified. And so this revelation is given in signs and in symbols. And much of it comes from the Old Testament. I've already noted for you that 300 of the 404 verses are Old Testament allusions. And yet never once does it say Isaiah said or David predicted or Moses wrote. You have to go back and dig. And then many of the symbols in the Revelation are given in the same paragraph where it's interpreted. The dragon that's mentioned in chapter 12, a few verses later, is identified for us as Satan, the serpent of old, the devil. So there's no mistake. And so you have to dig. You say, well, why didn't God just say what he meant? He did. He said it in symbols, and I'm so glad he did. Because it forces us to dig and to read carefully. And God wants us to go back to these Old Testament passages. Because if you don't, you don't really understand the fullness of what John is trying to say. See, a lot of us, we read the Bible, I don't know, kind of haphazardly. We read a chapter, and if I met you later in the day, if your life depended on it, you couldn't tell me what that chapter was about that you read. But when you study something like Revelation, you are forced to dig and to mind it out like precious treasure, as the proverb said. So let's talk about this symbol, out of the sea, as this next uh, slide shows us. The term out of the sea, uh, you might want to circle those few words and draw an arrow out into the margin and write down a few verses. First, you might want to write down Daniel 7. Uh, verses 2 and 3. Daniel there said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts, he said, were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, very often in the Bible, the word sea refers to a literal body of water, Or it can be used figuratively to describe the nations of the world. And John uses it both ways. And today in English, we use it both ways. We speak of a literal sea or we speak of that sea of people, that mass of people coming out of the stadium. Write down another verse, Isaiah 57, 20. The prophet there says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and the waters toss up refuse and mud. He is comparing the Jewish people to the pagan nations of the world that he describes as wicked and like the tossing sea. 
Jot down this verse, Isaiah 17, 2. It says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations, who rush on like rumbling of mighty waters. Again, sea being used there figuratively. Or even in the Revelation itself, we could have just given you this one verse, I suppose, Revelation 17, 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot, where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So in all of these passages, the word sea or waters refer to the pulsating nations of the world, the pagan nations of the world. And so the prophet Daniel uses this term, the sea, like the revelation does, to describe where the Antichrist will come. So Daniel, Isaiah, Revelation use it both figuratively and symbolically. So here in the opening verse, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, out of the nations of the world. So let's ask a question. If the Antichrist is going to come up out of the Gentile nations of the world, which is how the word the sea is habitually used in the Old Testament, do we have any idea from what section of the Gentile world that this coming world leader will come from? I'm glad you asked. We do have an answer. Now, please notice again Daniel 7, verses 2 and 3. And I want you to note in your mind the usage of that little word, the, the article. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, remember, Daniel, like John, is writing apocalyptic literature in sections of his great book, and he uses all these different symbols. And we have to discern what the symbol is. And, of course, he begins in the first person, unlike the other visions where he saw this and I saw, I was looking. Why? Because now he's not interpreting Darius's dream or Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but a dream that God gives him. I was looking in my vision by night, and I saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Not a sea, but the great sea. He uses the article. So he has a specific reference in mind. Now, if you've studied the Bible at all, that you know that geography in the Bible is always given in reference to the country of Israel. God sees Israel as the center of the world. And so when he speaks of north and south, it's north and south of Israel. And when you think of Israel proper, there are four seas that are around Israel. There's the Galilean Sea, there's the Red Sea, there's the Dead Sea. And then there is the Great Sea. And the Great Sea, of course, refers to the modern day, not Pacific or Atlantic, but the Mediterranean Sea. Furthermore, not only do we know the sea, we know the nations around that sea in the same prophecy that he's referencing that clinches it for us as to the exact area of the world. And by the way, not only does Daniel refer to in Daniel 7, 4 to 6 of the nations around this great sea as a lion, a bear, and as a leopard, which we identified the specific countries that were designated by those symbols, John uses the same terminology here in verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Satan, gave him power in his throne and great authority. Identical imagery 
referring to a particular section around the Mediterranean. See, here's a modern-day map of the Mediterranean and uh, the countries that Daniel uh, speaks of as a lion, a bear, as a leopard. They're all right around the Great Sea, or what today we call the Mediterranean Sea. So what do we know about the origin of this man? Well, first, both Daniel and Revelation teach that the Antichrist is going to come from a part of the world that is built around the sea, namely the former Roman Empire. And so if you remember Daniel's vision, there's a head and a breastplate and legs and feet. And at the bottom are ten toes that speak of ten nations that at the end of time God is going to bring together. And amongst those ten ten nations will come an eleventh nation that will end up ruling the whole world. So, big question. If this coming Antichrist, and God is definitive here, this is not a bunch of hooey, we know specifically where he's going to come from. If he comes from this area of the world that we call the former Roman Empire, does that mean he is going to be a Gentile? Well, that's a good question. And I told you when we were in Daniel 11, I would answer it when we came to the Revelation. A few of you remembered that. I don't know if you got a good memory if you've been going back to listen to Daniel. But if you remember, we looked at Daniel 11 and verse 37. Let me dust off your minds with that verse. It says, he will show no regard, speaking of this coming Antichrist, By the way, Daniel 11, the second half, gives you more information on the coming Antichrist than any other chapter in all the Bible. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now, this expression, no regard for the gods of his fathers, is really a foolproof expression proving that this man is not a practicing Jew. And some from that conclude, therefore, he must be a Gentile. Had he been a practicing Jew, he would not have used the term that he did. He would not have said the Elohim's plural, the gods of our fathers. He would have said the Yahweh of our fathers. But it's not surprising that the Antichrist would not be a practicing Jew doesn't mean he's a Gentile. Think about it. You go to Israel today, and unless you go to Jerusalem or one of the special cities like Tiberias, Hebron, where there's large Orthodox uh, groups of people, most of the Jews who keep moving there are very secular. They're as liberal as you can imagine. They are pro-gay rights. They're pro-abortion. They're pro-adultery, they're pro-partying. You go to places like Tel Aviv and you say, man, this is as pagan as the United States. With the exception of the Orthodox, who are the practicing Jews. Yet they have great national pride. They celebrated by the millions there on the 70th anniversary of their nation. Not by accident. They celebrated by the millions on the victory that God gave them on the 67-day war. It was a miracle war. There was no human explanation how they could have possibly won except the hand of God Almighty because He's preserving them as a nation and He is going to finish the final events in human history through the Jewish people. Yet, most of the Jews are very secular. 
in their lifestyle, kind of like Americans. Most Americans, we believe in God, we're Christians. Yet they were out last night getting blown away at the local bar. They're surfing the pornography on the web. They have little regard. 80% of Americans today are not in church. That's almost the exact opposite of 50 years ago. See, we're just like Israel. We're like the rest of the world. I probably think that, and I could be wrong, but I suspect that the 144,000 that God will raise up will come from the Orthodox realm, people who are looking and breathing and looking for the coming of the Messiah. So this guy will not be a practicing Jew. Does that mean that he's a Gentile? Not at all. In fact, beyond the fact that um, he describes God as the God of his Elohim, remember there's a couple of other things that are very, very important. He comes as the Antichrist. Just think about the title for a second. Remember, Christ is the uh, English word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah, Hebrew, Christos, Greek. Same title, two different languages. You could call him anti-Messiah, and that he comes in the place of the Messiah, and he comes opposing the Messiah, namely the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus. It's not by accident that God gives that title, and out of the 30-some titles of this coming Superman of Satan, that's his most popular title. The Jews are not looking for a Gentile Messiah, even the secular Jews. Now, their vision of a Messiah is different from the vision that the Orthodox people have. But nonetheless, they are still looking for the promised Messiah. And their vision of a Messiah is of a Jewish man. Why? Because the Bible reveals Messiah would be a Jew from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. You ask any, especially religious Jew, and they'll laugh at you if you suggested for a moment that the Messiah could be a Gentile. In addition, God gives biblical evidence that the Messiah will be a Jew. Listen to Zechariah chapter 12. The Lord said to me, and by the way, if you know the book of Zechariah, there are two parts, 1 through 8, 9 through 14. 9 through 14 is largely a prophetic section that deals with the first coming of Messiah. One section that's quoted, like when Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And it talks about how the Jewish people, God predicted how the Jewish people would reject the Lord Jesus. And then it speaks of the second coming of Messiah. And most of you at least know Zechariah 14, when the Messiah will literally plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. Never happened. It's going to happen. He is going to split it in two. So in Zechariah 11, the Lord, Yahweh, said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, Seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the, uh, the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. And so God has Zechariah playing the role of a foolish shepherd. Why? Because his people, it's predicted, would reject the true shepherd. And so what are they going to do? They're going to embrace a false shepherd. By the way, Jesus gives the identical prophecy in different words. Let me read it to you from John 5, 43. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leadership who said to the people, Jesus is an imposter, a fake, a fraud, a blasphemer. We should crucify him. And Jesus said to those leaders, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. 
This foolish shepherd, or the one here described by Jesus as coming in his own name, is allowed by God because they forsook the true shepherd. And Jesus uses a specific word for another, another shepherd. Remember there in the, in the upper room discourse, he said, I'm going to send another one who is described as the Holy Spirit. Not a heteros one, but an alos one. Remember, there are two words for another in Greek, unlike in English. There's the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. So we get our word uh, heterodoxy and uh, heterosexual and so forth. And then there's the word Alos, which means another of the same kind. So just as Jesus is a Jew who claimed to be the Messiah, there's coming a Jewish man, as you would expect, as the Jews all believe, who is going to claim to be the Messiah, and they are going to embrace him. Now remember, there's a reason why he's called the Antichrist. And I've noted for you before that the word anti can mean both against or the opposite of, or it can mean instead of. And both expressions in the context are used in the New Testament. In many ways, this man comes and he is the opposite of the Lord Jesus. He comes with power, but not the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes with devilish power. So here's a man who comes up out of the sea. That is, he comes from the nations of the world. He's going to be a Jew who doesn't live in Israel, but in another part of the world. But he also, if you remember from chapter 9, he comes up out of the abyss. What do you mean? I thought he's a real human. He is. But remember the abyss, one out of the sea speaks of his geographical origin, out of the abyss speaks of his satanic empowerment. He's coming in the place of Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. This is Satan's imposter. He is a real human, but as Paul will underscore, and as we will see in the Revelation, he comes with false signs, false wonders, false miracles. He is a deceiver. He does great things, but he is empowered by the devil himself. And so in many ways, he is the opposite of the Lord Jesus. He comes in the first half like an angel of light, as Satan often describes himself. But he is a satanic Messiah. He is the opposite of the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. All right? Now, I know this. Some of you are starting to glaze over. (laughs) Take some notes. Go home and study it. It reminds me of that seventh grade teacher. She brought out all the tests, and she waved them, and she said, I hate to tell you, all of you flunked the course. Uh, flunked the test. You're all a bunch of dumb students. And I'm not surprised she said that you flunked the test. You barely listen to me. Hardly any of you take notes. You're all a bunch of dumb students. In fact, anyone in this class who's dumb, I want you to stand up right now. They all sat there and one boy kind of sheepishly stood up in the back of the room. She said, Jim, are you dumb? He said, well, no, ma'am, but I didn't want you to be standing all alone. (laughs) Look, take down some notes. Write down some of these. Go home. Reflect on these. So that's how the beast originates. Secondly, let's think about how the beast operates, how he operates for a moment. Look at verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. 
Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, these verses, again, are using symbolic language, but they tell us something about the kind of man, the coming Antichrist is, and the nature of his coming kingdom. In fact, I'll not spend a lot of time on it because John is just introducing to us, and when we come to Revelation 17, he's going to spend a whole chapter on it. But let me give you a brief preview. You might want to put on the margin next to the verse, Revelation 17, 9. Let me read it. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman, this religious harlot, sits. And so when the Antichrist comes, he's going to have an apostate religion that is going to gather the world together. And the Bible tells us that this apostate harlot of sorts, this false religion, will be built on a city of seven mountains. And by the way, there's only one city in the world like that, and it's Rome. In addition, verse 1 tells me that he has ten horns which we learn through the prophet Daniel that horns are symbols of power and authority. And here you might want to write over that word, Revelation 17, 12, where the ten horns are defined for us. Let me read it to you. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now, we will review Daniel, and we'll go into great detail when we come to chapter 17, but since John doesn't do it now, I won't either, but we'll do it when John comes to it. But again, remember, we learned in Daniel there's going to be a revived Roman Empire of ten nations with ten kings, so to speak, and amongst the ten will come up an eleventh. It says, while I was contemplating Daniel 7, 8, the horns, these ten kings, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. So there's going to be this coalition of ten nations, three that seemingly come together that are going to kick against this man who starts as a little horn, as a small horn. He he starts in a very insignificant way, but he gains power and influence, and he rises to the very top, and he is going to rule over these ten nations, and he is going to give them power. He is going to give them authority. And so verse 1 speaks of ten crowns, which picture the truth that these ten kings have a time of limited authority and power under this coming world ruler. And on his heads, the Bible says, were blasphemous names. They will defy the God of heaven. They will embrace the theology of this coming Antichrist. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. These have one purpose. They give their power and authority, John says, to the Antichrist, that is, to the beast. And so it's interesting because we're going to see that this expression, the beast, refers not only to a person, but to the kingdom that he represents as he gathers these ten nations and then rises to the top and convinces the world to follow him. And we do the same today. We sometimes use a name to describe a kingdom when we say, well, uh, Hitler bombed London. We don't literally believe Hitler got in an airplane and pulled the switch and dropped the bombs. We're saying Nazi Germany bombed London. 
And that's how we're going to see it interchange. Now, very quickly, I'm just about done. Hmm. Beyond how he originates and beyond how he operates, I want you to see how he officiates. Think finally how the beast officiates. Verse 2, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. Now, to understand the description, you have to go back to Daniel 7, and we'll do that in great detail, but let me just refresh your mind. Remember, when Daniel has the vision in Daniel chapter 7, he speaks in that vision of a lion, a bear, and a leopard in that order. John uses the same three images, but remember, Daniel's looking ahead at three great nations. John is looking back, and so he puts them in reverse order. If you remember, here's the leopard, and in Daniel's prophecy, it represented Greece, who with great speed, Alexander the Great conquered the world. Then we saw the picture of a a bear, and Daniel prophesied of the Medo-Persian uh, Empire with its crushing claws and its massive strength as they came and toppled the people in that day. And then we saw the picture of the lion that Daniel used to picture Babylon prophesying of this ravenous uh, appetite and the terrifying presence that he bought. Well, Daniel uh, comes up with these different animal images to describe different nations. And so what John does is he looks back in reverse order, but he doesn't use a single animal to describe this coming Antichrist. Why? Because there's no animal that he can really picture to describe him. And so in essence, this coming man is a compilation of the leopard, of the bear, and the lion. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. No animal could really be combined together to fit that particular description. But the Antichrist will come like a a leopard, and that his rise to power will be very swift. All of a sudden, the world will be saying, man, where did this guy come from? He's now ruling the entire planet. He'll come like with the feet of those of a bear. He'll crush all those who oppose him. And like the mouth of a lion, he will devour anyone who dares to stand in his way. And the Bible says he's able to do this. Why? Because the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. He is Satan's superman. He is able to do what he does in the way he does it because he's empowered by the dark prince, by this evil prince, by the devil himself. And so he is given three things, his power, which speaks of his strength. He is given, according to this verse, his throne, that speaks of his dominion. And he is given great authority, that is, he's able to do whatever he wants to do. He is going to be the single most powerful ruler in all of human history. And just as Jesus could, in essence, say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, When the world will see this man, they will be seeing the devil's man. You say, well, how does this all apply to me, Pastor? Let me give you some closing applications. Number one, I am reminded from studying these verses and the parallel passages that when you reject the truth, you believe a lie. When you reject the truth, you end up believing a lie. I have come, Jesus said, in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you'll receive him. See, truth and error are opposites of the same coin. They're opposite sides of the same coin. And when you fail to embrace the truth, you will believe a lie.
A man, for instance, who refuses to believe his doctor that the, that the remedy he prescribes is the right remedy, he'll fall prey potentially to the wrong remedy. A person who refused to believe the creation account as God gave it in Scripture and as Jesus affirmed it to be true, he'll believe the wrong remedy. He'll believe the lie of evolution. A person who will not listen to someone who's trying to put them on the right road will end up on the wrong road. And of course, that's exactly what happened to Israel. Jesus came. He literally fulfilled all of the prophecies. But they rejected him for the same reason the average Gentile rejects him today. There are people listening to me today, and they say, man, why, why do you even waste your time on a Sunday? You could be out on the golf course. Is it raining today? I came in about 5.30. I hope it is. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Um, Sadly, though, when it's raining, we drop in 10%. Oh, I guess I'll live stream Pastor Brogie today. Honey, get me the iced tea and a hot coffee. We're live streaming today. We're not going in and fighting that rain. Listen, there's coming a day when people are going to believe a lie. And think about it. Never in all of their history... Until the time of Jesus, never once did all these people who came along and said, I'm Messiah, never once did the Jewish people say, he's the Messiah, let's follow him. Jesus comes, they reject Jesus, and a short time later, a man comes on the scene, he says, I'm Messiah, and they believed him. Then they saw he was a phony. And another came, I'm the Messiah, you go to Israel today. And if you look carefully, you see these posters, sometimes of rabbis who are long dead, sometimes men who Jewish people think is the Messiah. But I'm telling you, all these little Messiahs who have come along are like nothing compared to the man who's going to come where the nation at first is going to believe he is our Messiah. But he'll do something that we'll study in this chapter that will convince them that he's wrong. But let me tell you today, if you reject the truth, you will believe a lie. And I will prove to you from the Word of God that if you ignore the Lord Jesus, and if the rapture were to happen this afternoon, you won't say, you know, Brogy was right. I guess I need to turn my life over to Jesus. The Bible teaches you will not do that. Because you would not receive the truth in this age, we will see you will end up believing the lie. Secondly, I learned from this passage that the human heart was made to be occupied by the Lord. The Antichrist will accept the offer that Jesus rejected in Matthew 4 when Jesus there has offered all the kingdoms of the world if he will bow down and worship. Jesus refused that ridiculous offer, but it appears the Antichrist, he'll accept it. And Satan will control this coming world leader, and he'll be able to deceive just as Satan is able to deceive but there's an interesting parallel in our day that I want to point out in your thinking. Your heart was made to be occupied. Your heart was made to be occupied and controlled by the living God. 
And when you get saved, the living God, God the Holy Spirit, makes you a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are literally become a temple of the living God. And if you are past the age of accountability and you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then the Bible says whether you like it or not, you are of your father the devil. That's what Jesus said to the religious men of his day. You are in the kingdom of darkness. Paul says you are under control of the prince of the power of the air who is energizing the sons of disobedience. And God wants to occupy your heart. And if you ignore him, there will come a time when you will cross a line known only to God where you will believe a lie. And you might think this morning that your religion is just fine. Leave me alone. I go to church. I've been baptized. I'm a respectable person. I don't hurt anyone. But Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You want to go to heaven? You either receive Jesus for who he is, the truth, or you have to write him off as a liar or some egomaniac. His claims are so intense, so narrow, so precise, you have to decide what you're going to do with him. There's coming a day, probably sooner than most of us realize, when all of a sudden millions of Christians across this planet are going to be gone. And if you are still here, you will remember this sermon. And in the end, if you die and go to hell, you will remember these words on this Sunday for all of eternity. And you will say, why did I not receive Jesus? Father, we thank you a day will come when the honor that is due your son's name will happen that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, some freely, some before they are forever cast into the lake of fire. Father, we recognize the truth of your word that you did not make hell for man, but for the devil and his fallen angels. That any man who goes there is intruding because you did not design it for us. But thank you that you made a provision a way of escape, not just from hell, but to our relationship with you, where we can literally actually become a temple of the Spirit, where we can know you in a personal, life-changing way. Father, I pray today for someone whom the Spirit has been dealing with concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, that they would there in their own heart today call upon Jesus. For you said, whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help someone, Father, in simple, childlike faith to say, Father, I am a rebel, but I thank you that you sent your Son for all of my rebellion. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in my place and bearing the judgment I deserve. Thank you for proving that you are Lord when you were raised from the dead. Lord Jesus, I turn today for my own self-centered life. And I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Just tell them, say it, mean it. God can't lie. Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, there are some of us who have done that. 
but we've become a part of the lukewarm age that you said would manifest itself in the final days before the rapture. People who are indifferent Christian people who come to church when it's convenient, who serve if they feel like it, who give if it's convenient, and have so compromised their lives with alcohol, pornography, and all kinds of wicked things, and they think it's just fine. And Father, how sad it is for us to see schools, once great Christian schools that now are endorsing things that they taught for a hundred years to be wrong. God, our hearts, O God, watch over them. Help us to walk in a way that's worthy of what you have called us to be. Help us to warn men and women and girls and boys, even this week, to flee to Jesus, our only hope. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.